So tonight, as we turn to chapter 22, um, we're actually in the middle of a section within the book of Exodus dealing with the giving of the law. So just real quick, up to speed review. Um, The children of Israel out of Egypt, they're camping at the base of Mount Sinai. They're going to be there for 11 months. And what we've seen so far is God has thundered down from top of the mountain in an audible voice, the Ten Commandments, freaked out the two and a half million children of Israel to the point where they were shaking and trembling and in essence told Moses, we don't want him to talk to us. You go talk to him, tell us what he said, and we'll do it. And I'm sure they were very sincere when they said that, um, overestimating their ability to keep the law. Then after that happened, Moses did just that. He turned around, went back up onto the hill, and now he's receiving, if you would, like an elaboration, an interpretation of those Ten Commandments to apply to the everyday life of the people. And this section from chapter 20, verse 22, through chapter 24, if you're a note taker, is called the Book of the Covenant. And we find that in chapter 24, verse 7, by the way, not making that up, that's what they call it, the book of the covenant. This would have been, if you would, for lack of a better term, the handbook that they would have given the 70 elders and those guys to help judge and guide the people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to deal with all, we've already started last week and we're going to continue this week, dealing with all kinds of rules and laws and regulations that deal with every area of life you can possibly imagine. Tonight, we'll look at like property and and social justice issues and justice issues and um, relationship issues, all kinds of stuff tonight. I'm getting a little laugh because some of you have read ahead. Um, But here's the thing. In all seriousness, I've been so blessed reading this and studying this this week. Not just because we're not under the law. I do praise God for that. But even as we read this in its context and understand how God was giving this law to the children of Israel, I am so blessed by the heart of God in his law. Amen? Nowhere in this do you find any hint of God trying to jack his people up, be a killjoy, or just make life difficult. All of the law really reflects this heart of God to bring a blessing and goodness to his people. We see how he cares about equity. He cares about justice. He cares about the, you know, the, the little things relationally between people and how social stuff works. He's very involved, and that just blesses me that we don't serve some God that is far removed up in the heavens and just kind of wound up the earth and let it spin and doesn't really care about us. Amen? And you might be reading this going, who cares if somebody steals an ox? They might have thought, who cares if somebody steals? You don't care about these laws until it's your ox that gets stolen. And then you're like, thank you, God, for laws about stolen oxen. You know, and, and so on and so forth. But all that to say is I'm just so blessed. I hope that we're gleaning that. I hope that that's one of the big takeaways as we understand that a lot of this contextually may not apply directly to us, but there's principles and there's heart stuff behind it and there's transcendent principles that, that, that maybe aren't contained just in the law but maybe in translate to New Testament application, blah, blah, blah. Let's get moving back into it. So let's start right now. As we get into chapter 22, the first chunk of this, oh, down to about verse 9, is dealing with um, personal property. And 
Again, you may not think that's exciting unless it's your property that's being jeopardized. The key idea, before I just start reading, is this. Accountability. God is holding people accountable for their actions, accountable for what they said they would be responsible for, or if they get caught doing something they shouldn't do. There's to be accountability. So that's a key word to understand, verses 1 through 9. Another uh, key word to understand is restitution. You're going to come across that word or something like it um, over and over again as we go through this. If this guy does this, he's got to pay restitution. Restitution is an, um, an equivalent compensation for loss of property or damage or injury or something like that. And so God is holding people accountable, making people pay restitution if they are um, accountable to that. So with that, just kind of priming the pump, let's, let's jump in. Verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So there you go. If they got caught, in oxen and sheep and goats and all that stuff in Bible days, that was their wealth. You understand that that was their property. That was kind of what defined, you know, your portfolio, if you would. And so it was a big deal to steal somebody's sheep. By the way, did you notice this? You steal somebody's ox, what's proper restitution? You got to pay back five oxen. You steal a sheep, how many? Four. What, what story just flashes in your mind? Second Samuel chapter 12 David's been hiding the fact that he has committed adultery and murder. He's been covering it up for nine months. Nathan has this parable that he comes to him and says, yeah, there was a rich man, has all these sheep, all this stuff, and his neighbor has one sheep. And his friend came over. He didn't want to kill his one, you know, he didn't want to kill one of his zillions of sheep, so he went and stole that one sheep and, and killed it and served it. And what was David's response? Kill him! Capital punishment! Whoa, David, simmer down. See, he overreacted. What, was the, what did the law say? Well, pay back, tell that guy he's got to pay back what? Four sheep. Why was David all chapped? Because the story was about him and he knew it. See, when any, anytime anybody completely overreacts like that, there's a deeper issue. And that deeper issue was the fact that David was the guy. And we, that's the whole story. But interesting that here you have the actual law just said, no, four sheep, don't kill him. Well, verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be uh, blood guilt for him. Okay, so a lot of this is self-explanatory. You're at home, somebody breaks in to steal your goat, it's dark, you bash him over the head with whatever, and the guy dies, like, you're off the hook, okay? But if it's daytime, the idea was you saw it coming, it wasn't a big thing, you didn't have to kill him, you could have just stopped it. Then if he kills him, he's on the hook for the for the death. Verse uh, 3 goes on to say, he shall pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for, for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. So there you go. Verse 5. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and his own vineyard. So you're like, I want my sheep to get all fat, but I don't want to like have it cost me anything. I'll just kind of let him loose in my neighbor's yard and eat his grass and stuff. Well, if you do that, then you've got to give from the best of yours to repay. Again, he's personal responsibility. I'm sure we can draw modern applications for that if we want to. Verse 7, if a man um, 
Well, excuse me, verse 6. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain of the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Now, this is interesting because this is like an accident. In Oregon, we would always have big burn piles, you know, and, and it's always so wet you really weren't too worried about it getting out of control. But in certain parts of Oregon, it gets super dry and there's massive fires happen. And the idea was, hey, you're burning this stuff over here, but it gets loose into your neighbor's field or whatever, burns his grain. Guess what? Even though it was an accident, you got to take responsibility for your actions and you got to pay restitution. So that's what that law was all about. Verse 7, I know I'm kind of going quickly through these because I think as we get to the end of the section tonight, that's a little bit more of where we want to hunker down. Verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God. Now check this. You guys look at this. Verse 8. A lot of translations say God. Some translations say to the judge. The idea here is that it's to a judge. And the reason it says God is it's using the word Elohim in the, in the Hebrew. And it's kind of the idea of one that is in power and overseeing. But the context is talking about a judge, not God, God. So he says, look. Um, you, this whole section right here is dealing with somebody gives you stuff to keep safe, whether it's property or money, and something happens to it while it's under your responsibility. So it, it says if uh, it's stolen and the thief is found, you pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner has to go to the judge, and the judge basically determines if that guy stole the guy's property. Does that make sense? I give you, let's just say I give you a couple hundred thousand dollars to hold on to for the weekend. Because I, I have that kind of money. And, uh, and somebody steals it. Well, the thief is found and has to pay it, like, pay it back. But let's say the thief's not found. And now I'm like, you're like, hey, uh, did I give you the money or did you give me? Let's say um, I gave you the money. I'd be like, hey, where's my money? And you'd be like, I don't know, man. I think somebody stole it. And then we'd have to go to the judge and figure out whether you took it or not. You probably took it. I know you. Verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep or a cloak or any kind of lost thing, which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judge or God, and the one whom God or the judge condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So th this is like a dispute where there's this argument. We're like, no, it's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Well, the idea is it would go to the judge. He'd look at all the evidence, and then he would make a decision, render a judgment, and then the person who's in the wrong has to double up on the payment. Verse 10. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a surfboard or any uh, beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it. Now that's the operative phrase. There's no witness. An oath by the Lord shall be between uh, them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. So something happens, nobody saw it, and you say, I had nothing to do with it. You would, in a sense, kind of lay your hand on the Bible, as it were, or whatever, make an oath, and the guy who, who has lost his stuff has to just accept it. Say, okay, well, you promised to God that you didn't take it, so I have to believe you. And so he does. Well, verse 12. But if, the stole, if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's torn by a beast, let him bring the evidence, and he shall not make restitution for that which has been torn. Verse 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner, uh, not being with it, not a witness to it, 
he shall make full restoration. If the owner was with him, he shall not make restitution. It was, if it was hired or rented, like he rented their donkey for the day, it will come out of the hiring fee. In other words, that was just part of the rental agreement. Guy gets to keep your money, but he's out the donkey or whatever. I hate the, I don't hate it, but this verse convicts me, verse 14. When I, uh, our first house that we had in Oregon, um, my neighbor next door had loaned me a pair of work gloves for something I was doing. And I had this black lab named Pacha. And Pacha got a hold, <laughs> rest in peace. Um, Pacha got a hold of those gloves. Like, I used them, and then I put them back on the fence, kind of like, hey, there's your gloves. I thought he'd see them and pick them up, but Pacha got a hold of them and just shredded them. And then I, I always kept thinking about this law, like popped into my head, like, you need to make restitution. You need to buy him a new pair of gloves or maybe two, you know. And, and, but then I would just like, oh, yeah, I should totally do that. And then I would get busy. And then time got, went on. And then it was awkward because I never actually bought the gloves. And so all that to say is I'm a lawbreaker and I need Jesus. But doesn't this stuff just like, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, this, do this. If this happens, do this. It's just so practical. It's just so wonderfully rubber meet the road-ish that God would care about this kind of stuff. Like, hey, you wronged him, then make it right. And what is this doing, by the way? It's keeping harmony. It's keeping order in the culture. There's, it's not chaos. He's, he's bringing, you know, order, yeah, to um, the culture, but also a harmony. And like, okay, if things are made right, then there's no weirdness between us anymore. And so that's God's heart. Well, stepping onto the clutch and shifting gears a little bit, now he's going <laughs> to start dealing with some more like humanitarian and social justice issues that I think are super relative to us. Look at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lays with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins, which we know later on in Deuteronomy, 50 shekels of silver. So there's, here's the thing. A man seduces a virgin, um, also just the word meaning a marriable age girl. They have a sexual relationship. What's to happen? That guy has to pay the dad 50 shekels of silver, and marry her, and Deuteronomy goes on to say, and they shall not ever be divorced. But if the dad's like, heck, no, I'm not giving that guy to you. You know, that guy's an idiot. You're not marrying him. Guess what? He still has to pay. And the, the problem, yeah, so, so this is an interesting law. And I was thinking a lot about this because remember what I said about the laws kind of reveal God's heart on stuff. And I just want to note two things about this. Um, if you want to write them down to help you remember or just kind of think them through. Um, in this law, I think two things kind of surface. The first one is this. We see the sacredness of sex. The sacredness of sex. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm just going to read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church full of all kinds of problems. They had a church that loved the Lord, had a lot of good things going on, but there was sexual immorality running rampant. There was division. There was all kinds of carnality within the church. And he says this. 
All things are lawful for me, but not everything is helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Then he's quoting a popular saying of the day. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, end quote. And he says, and God will destroy both and one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then make the members of Christ um, and make them members with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin as a, a person commits is outside of the body, but sexual immorality um, but sexual immorality, uh, oh, excuse me, sexually immoral persons um, sin against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I took the time to read that because here's the point. In Corinth, and if you know anything about your Bible history, Corinth was a city that was completely just off the charts, sensual and crazy, much like our culture, a sex-charged, sex-saturated society. And their saying of the day was, meat is for the stomach and stomach for food. You know, food is for the stomach, stomach for food. In other words, what they were communicating is this. When I'm hungry, I eat. And, the, and then they would take that to the next level say, Sexual desire is just like any other physical appetite. It just needs to be satiated once in a while. And what Paul is saying is this. You cannot use that. You can't say, just like my body appetite has, you know, has an appetite for food, my body also has this op- natural, normal appetite for sex, which is true, so I just have to fulfill it just like I'm eating a hamburger or something like that. And that was the popular thought of the day. That's the popular thought in our day, is that it's just two physical bodies coming together. And, I, and I'm not, I'm taking the time on this because I honestly feel like we have a whole generation coming up, and even older people too, that we have bought the lie of our culture because it's being pumped into our ears and eyes every second of the day that we should just give in however we want. There's no consequences. It's guilt-free. It's just a body appetite, two bodies coming together. But the Bible teaches something different, and this is where um, it's so important for us to understand. Paul references it in that 1 Corinthians 6 passage. When God created Adam and Eve and brought them together, and it says the two became what? One. There is a oneness that happens in the sexual relationship that is not just two bodies, but it is soulic and it is emotional, and there's something mystical and wonderful about that oneness. But the problem is, is that done outside of the marriage relationship, that oneness isn't actually, that oneness is taking place, but then it's being ripped apart. You ever glued two pieces together with Elmer's wood glue? Anybody ever used Elmer's wood glue? That stuff is gnarly because you glue it together, but then, and you just try to, okay, I, I don't want to have those two pieces of wood glued together anymore. I'll rip them apart. It's not a clean break. Part of one piece is glued to the other still, and part of the other one is glued to the other, and it's all jagged and ripped apart because you got pieces of that one, that one got pieces of that one, and that's what happens to our souls 
when we come together with somebody outside of a marriage relationship and it's pulled apart and Proverbs says the person that commits adultery or sexual sin is unwise because they're damaging their own soul. Paul declares every other sin is outside the body, but sexual sin is within the body. You're hurting yourself, and this is the lie. See, outside of a sexual, or excuse me, a marital relationship, sex is actually damaging your relationship. It's actually damaging your soul. It's damaging your partner's soul. It's damaging your relationship. It's creating insecurity, mistrust. And if you're a Christian, you're also hurting the body of Christ because now the witness and, and, and your usability and your witness to the world is diminished. Now, this isn't meant to be condemning. See, this is meant to be educational because like I said, we've been so pumped with the wrong information and, we, and it's all a design of Satan and the world to bring something that God created to be sacred and reserved and wonderful and holy and, want, and just awesome and to bring it down to a base level that is cheap and is disposable. Now, here's the beauty. Done within the marriage relationship, it is actually creating, helping to create a oneness and a health within the marital relationship. See, here's the thing. God is not trying to keep you from having fun. God is not trying to make your life difficult. God's desire is that in the sexual relationship, it would be awesome, amazing, like he designed it to be. And if you can grab a hold of that and understand God's not trying to, to kill your joy. He's trying to promote your joy. He wants the absolute best for you in that. Now, here's the other thing I want to say is that if you failed in that area, get up and leave. No, I'm just kidding. We, we don't have to get up and leave in some way, shape, or form because we, we probably many, if not all of us, have in some way, shape, or form failed in some area of sexuality. But here's the great news is that the blood of Jesus covers all of those sins. Amen? And you can be washed as white as snow. And if you come humbly and you say, Lord, forgive me, and you repent and you turn from that, you are washed white as snow. You're like a virgin in his eyes, and it can be all brand new. And he'll restore you in that way. I really believe that. Amen? The second part of that law, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on it, but the second part of it is that he was to marry her. What does that reveal? Not only the sacredness of sect, but the sex, but the sanctity of the ceremony. See, a lot of people will say, well, it's just a piece of paper, and that's something culture came up with. The marriage is not something culture came up with. Marriage is something God came up with, and what God is saying is, oh, you're going to make love to her. Oh, cool. That means you're going to marry her, and guess what? You're going to go through the act of paying the money, going through the process, and having the ceremony, and you're going to do it. What does that, that to me speaks volumes that, that listen, God is interested in in the public and, um, you know, declaring of vows and making the commitment and paying the price and being invested and doing it. And it's, it's not just something, well, well, God just knows our heart. <laughs> I laugh because that's what people have been saying for a few thousand years. He does know our heart. Our heart is wicked and easily justifies anything we want to do. But God says, no, the marriage is important. And so, 
if you're not married, pay attention to these things. If you failed in these things, praise God that there's grace and there's, you can make a right, you know, that's a wonderful thing about repentance. It's a hope word. It means you can change your mind and go in the right direction and get on track and it's all good. Amen? But I think these things are important and this is the, the, the point that really just want to drive home about this and it falls under all these other things as well is, and it keeps coming up. It came up in Isaiah's teaching um, the other week or last week. It came up um, on, on Sunday night, and I, I think I mentioned it last Wednesday. We have to think biblically, not allow culture to shape how we think in the church. We, as the children of God, live in this world, but we are ruled by a different king. We have a different way of living. We're to be different and aliens and, and walk in a way that is ruled by a completely different set of of rules that should be so weird to the world around us. How weird is it if you tell your coworkers, oh no, I'm gonna abstain until I have, you know, until we get married? They're gonna be like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Why would you do that? You wouldn't buy a car without test driving it, would you? That's so wise. <laughs> it is wise. It's worldly wisdom. There is worldly wisdom, but there's a wisdom that comes from God. There's godly wisdom. Paul would pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will with all um, spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we have to think biblically, guys. We have to think biblically. And I also love, by the way, in 1 Timothy 4.12, where it admonishes the young men and the young women to set an example for believers in a lot of things, but it adds purity, purity. And I think that I, I thank God that there's young men and young women that are like, you know what, I don't care what culture's shoving down my throat. I don't even care what the example of my parents or people around me. I'm going to do what the Bible says. That's what's up. Okay, let's move on. It gets easier from here. Not really. Verse 18, something a little lighter. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Okay. Death penalty to a sorceress or a witch. The whole idea there is dealing with the supernatural in a way where you're using incantations or dealing with demonic forces, calling upon the dead. This is astrology. This is tarot card reading. This is things that are, and here's why. It's not that God's like, I just don't like that stuff. No, he says it's a cancer. It is worship. There's a spiritual, real, dark, demonic force behind those things that is not to be made light of. And as believers, he says, would say to us, I believe, don't have anything to do with those things. I was very unpopular with my kids when I didn't want, let them watch Harry Potter. Go ahead, mock me all you want. Well, I thought I'd get more of a reaction. Um, and you, you got to let the Holy Spirit lead you. I'm not going to, no one's making a law or anything like that. I'm just saying I had my personal convictions about those things, and, and you may or may not. But, but the, the point is, is that all, it's very very in right now to be spiritual. It's very in to, to delve into these kind of things and it looks so kind of just cool and edgy. And listen, there's a very real demonic force behind those things that will keep people hooked and thinking like, oh, it's just kind of playing around. It's nothing, it's worth just energy and this and that, whatever. But it's dark. And the deeper you go, the darker it gets. And it's something that, as um, God's people, we, we are really to have nothing to do with. And in this day, he was like, look, I'm not going to let it infect my kids. Um, it's going to be dealt with immediately. Verse 19. Verse 20. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal 
shall be put to death. If I could insert an emoji right here, it would be the flush-faced, wide-eye, like, he just said that. <laughs> God, and you're like, really, God? You, did you really need to throw that law onto the books? Yeah. Yeah, he did. God doesn't waste words. Here's the thing. They were going into a culture, into the Canaanite culture where they were going to take the land that was so just deviant sexually and so messed up in the way they did idol worship. And that practice was there. And so God is putting a straight law upon it. By the way, did you know that in almost every single state in the United States of America, there is a law on the books that deems bestiality either a misdemeanor or a felony. So there's a reason that those laws are on the books, except for the states of uh, Wyoming, New Mexico, West Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Hawaii. It's legal. So there you go, Hawaii. Here's the thing. I obviously don't want to go too far off on this. It's a mess. But it's actually perfectly normal. If we tell our kids from day one that they've evolved from animals themselves, this is the natural progression of where a culture and a society will go. It's the next thing on the books that they'll just say equal rights to. Because we've told our kids from day one that they're nothing more than animals that are just highly evolved. And this is just another slap in the face to God and another reason why the um, theory and the horrible, scientifically horrible and laughable theory of um, evolution is so from the pit of hell because it is designed to make us animals and so why should we be surprised if people act like animals with animals if we've told them they're animals their whole life? You're not an animal. We are not animals. Guys, this is, again, the heart behind God's law is he's elevating and says, you are made in my image. We're not animals, not to act like animals. So that's on the books. Let's leave it alone and keep moving. I think we did that pretty well. Verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be uh, devoted to destruction. And that's going back to those first couple of commandments. Verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, uh, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they shall cry out to me, and I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wife shall be widows, and your children shall be fatherless. Whoa. Touched a nerve. In that little section, God is dealing with the vulnerable in culture. He says you're not to wrong or mistreat or oppress, and he gave three categories. The sojourner, and we've talked about the sojourner. The idea is alien, a foreigner, somebody who's a stranger in their land. They're not from their, uh, this island. They're not from this area. They're, they're from a different place. They have a different language. They have a different culture. They don't know the language. They're a refugee. They're an alien, whatever, what have you. You're not to oppress them. You're not to mistreat them. You're, you're to love them and be compassionate to them. And also widows in that culture, by the way, um, if, you, if your husband died, he was your source of income. Uh, there was no, like, welfare program necessarily. That's why the church was taking care of widows in the early part of the church. 
Um, and so he's like, look, don't take advantage of them. Don't go after them. And then he talks about orphans, um, kids, again, just with no parents and, and no, no ability to have that covering of parents. He says you don't exploit them. God has a soft spot for the vulnerable. And what did he say? You mistreat them. You oppress them. I will come after you. <laughs> They're going to cry to me, and guess what? I'm listening to them. So be very, very careful. I love in the New Testament in James chapter 1 verse 27 that it's the pure and undefiled religion as to what? Visit orphans and widows in their time of need and to stay unspotted from this world. That's one of the verses that God gave us when we were praying about doing foster care and then ended up eventually um, being able to adopt JJ. Um, I, I really believe that in our culture, in other cultures, orphanages and orphans are a huge problem. Not saying that doesn't happen here. But I believe the modern-day orphan in our culture in the United States um, is the hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of foster children that just need people to love them and take care of them who have been forced out of their families and don't have that covering anymore. So that's my little soapbox. I won't kind of stand on it too hard. But as Christians, we're to be those, I believe, that are looking out for the vulnerable and the less fortunate and, and loving on them and taking care of them. Amen? I'll just let that lie there and let the Spirit do what He wants in you with that. Um, then He goes on to talk about in verse 25, um, if you lend money to any of my people uh, with you who's poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Um, I'll pause there just for a second. He says, look, if someone's poor and they need a loan and you give them money, don't charge them interest. That was his law. He said, they're poor. Don't charge them interest. Let them pay it back. Don't, don't be like a, a high-rate credit card, you know, to them or a high-rate bank or something. Just give them the money. To take that a step further, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, whoever asks you for anything to what? Give it to them freely. Here's a great little thing. If somebody needs 20 bucks, don't loan it to them. Give it to them or whatever proportionally you can handle. Why? Because then that way, they're off the hook. There's not that weirdness of like, hey, that guy owes me 20 bucks. If they want to pay it back, great. But guess what? In your heart, you gave it to them. It was a gift, and they're free. Hey, I'll get it back to you. What are you talking about? I gave it to you. It's yours. It takes all the weirdness and awkwardness away if you just give it to them. Amen? I say amen like I'm so holy. I remember... Um, I had this, the, the first opportunity I had years and years ago to, to go on a missions trip to Sudan. I was in Africa, and um, I'm teaching at this little thing with some other pastors, with these Sudanese pastors that were from all over, and life-changing, radical experience on many levels. But as we were leaving, some of the guys were, like, giving the guys some stuff, and I had just gotten this watch that I really liked. And this dude was like, can I have your watch? And I'm thinking to myself, like, bro, what do you need a tide watch for in Sudan? You know what I mean? There's no ocean right here. <laughs> you know, why do you need and, 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 and I honestly, to this day, don't think his motives were pure. I think he was just like, like oh, we're getting stuff. And I struggle with that because I went back to my little hut thing, and I'm like, Lord, this guy's just trying to get stuff. And that verse, oh, man, I, even op- I made the mistake of opening my Bible to Matthew chapter 5, and I read it out loud, and it doesn't say, if he asks you with a good heart. I was just like, mm. 
So I'm still bitter to this day. It doesn't count. I get no jewels in heaven for giving that watch away. I'm just kidding. Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. But I, I just, all that to say is like, I love this heart. It's just like, don't take advantage of them. Just bless them. Verse 26, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. And, and what else is he to sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear him. And I love this phrase, because I'm compassionate. You, you owe me this money, and he says, I'll pay it back. Here's my cloak as, a, as just kind of like a, you know, just a, what's that word I'm looking for? Um, uh, earnest or whatever that I'll get it back to you. And you're like, okay, well, you better. And the sun goes down, and he hasn't paid you back. Guess what? Go give him his coat back. Where's my money? Give him his coat back because he's going to be cold tonight. You understand? He's like, look, don't have such a tight grip on stuff and money and have compassion because I'm compassionate. Verse 28, almost done. He says, um, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, earlier I told you that the word God was being translated judge. Here, it's a little bit more difficult because some translations have it as God. It says, so don't revile God or curse a ruler. And others have it where it says, don't revile a judge or curse a ruler. Which one is it? Both really apply. There's a linkage, and I don't want to steal the thunder from this Sunday because I happen to know we're in Romans chapter 13. But the idea is, is that God's people were not to talk negatively in a vile way about their leaders. And I'm again, Steve's going to develop that, and it's going to be mind-blowing, and it's going to shrink the church this Sunday for sure. But... Um, well, I don't do that anymore. Well, yeah, maybe because your guy's in office now, but how was it eight years ago? And, and it, was, it was ugly. It's almost like we took this idea, so many of us Christians, even from the pulpit, and we said, that it's okay to disagree with policy. It's okay to disagree with the person. We live in a country where we get to vote that person out if we don't like it. But to make personal attacks and to revile them in that kind of way is wrong. And it's sin that we need to repent of. You know, we're not called to be Republicans. We're not called to be Democrats. We're not called to get people to get on board with our political view. As Christians, we are called to the kingdom of God. And our job is not to convert people to our political mindset or our policies. Our job is to convert people to Jesus. And then they can vote their conscience later. And yes, we should stand up for righteousness and we vote accordingly, and I'm all for those things, absolutely. But I sometimes think that there's this sway that's been happening in our culture where if you're not careful, you go to some churches and you think the Great Commission has to do with converting people to a conservative view of politics. I happen to be pretty conservative in my po political views. But that's not our goal, guys. Our goal is to point people to Jesus. We're not trying to win people to our party. We're trying to win people to the kingdom. Amen? Maybe one amen. You guys aren't sure how you feel about it. That's okay. I'm going to let Steve take the bullet for that one on Sunday. Um, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest or from the outflow of your presses, like your wine, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Uh, he's de he'll develop all these things later on in the law of what exactly that meant. It's not talking about... Um, sacrificing them, but there'll be like a payment 
uh, because the firstborn would belong to the Lord. Verse 30, you shall do the same with your oxen, your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, but on the eighth day you give it to me. Verse 29 is the key. It says, don't delay in offering the, from the fullness of your harvest. God says, and this is the kind of the first mention of something that will be repeated often and over and over and developed, and it's this idea of giving the first fruit. There'll be, um, actually, next chapter we'll deal with it again, too. The first fruits of your harvest, and, and if you have an animal, the firstborn, it belongs to the Lord. He gets the first, he gets the best. And that's a way of worshiping God, of acknowledging that it's from him, of thanking him, and again, I want to talk more about that in, in the next chapter, but um, the key that I've found on this is in verse 29 where it says, you shall not delay. I like that. The principle is to give it, but what he's admonishing them is, but don't delay in giving it. I, I, that's, that's fascinating. Why? Because I believe if, if you delay, then it's more likely of a chance to just not do it at all, Right? I'm so glad that when I got my first job when I was 15, that my mom and my dad taught me to just give the first chunk of it back to the Lord in a tithe. And I don't believe that we're under the law to tithe, but I, I believe in that principle personally. I think it's a great starting point. And I'm so glad that, I, that you guys taught me that. And, and, um, but I can remember that first check, and I was like, <laughs> but I have to pay car insurance, and I got to drive. And I'm like, but, but if I give that, I'm so glad that my parents are like, no, that's the first check you write. But what about my other bills? God will take care of those. We, we take it differently. We're like, well, if I got anything left over, I'll kick it down to God. What if we gave our first and our best to God and then just watched him provide for the rest? crazy different way of thinking this is this is sometimes the last stop on the train for a lot of christians where it's like they've given ever over every area of their life but then it's like the money thing like here we go they're gonna talk about money you know why pastors talk about money god talks about money and money is very closely linked to our heart and you can really tell a lot about a person by where they put their money and and, and it's almost like put your money where your mouth is we, we we say you're the lord of everything we give you our lives and he doesn't ask for much. And guess what? He doesn't even need our money. It's not even about that. It's about us investing in the kingdom. Yes, not even primarily about that. But it's more about just acknowledging that all that we have is from him. And we thank you for it. And we acknowledge that it's from you. And Lord, we're just thankful and, and we commit it to you, right? He says, don't delay in doing that. I know for me, if I'm like, if I don't do it first, then the rest, there's always too much month at the end of the money. You know what I'm talking about? Later on, you're like, well, I can't do it now, or else that one's going to bounce like a rubber ball. No one understands. See, younger generation, there's these things called checks, and they're like pieces of paper, and you, anyway, don't delay. Give it first. What if we, what if we had this attitude of like when the basket was coming around, because we often talk about giving with a cheerful heart. What if we were just like stalking the basket guy, like, I can't wait to give today, instead of like, here comes the basket. I love you, Lord. And I, you know, like, is he gone yet? <laughs> Can I, in all seriousness, give you a little pro tip on tithing and offerings? Before you just shove it in the basket, grab the hand of your wife, guys, or, or your spouse, or your kids, and just right there in your seat, pause and pray. 
Father, thank you for blessing us with this money. And Lord, as we drop it in the basket, we're doing it because we love you and we praise you. And it, all of a sudden, it, it's not just three songs, tithe, offering, next song, announcements. It's just not something that we worked into the service. It, do you know why we do it during the service? It's an act of worship. But, but let it be that, amen? Don't delay. Do it. Do it with zeal. And then finally, last verse. How long could a guy talk about one verse? Verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. You shall be holy to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by a beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. <laughs> what? It started out so good. You shall be holy to me. So don't eat an animal that's been thrashed by another animal. Just throw it to the dogs, okay? This is a weird verse to me. Part of the reason I told you that God gave the law to Israel was that they were to be a set-apart people. They were to look different, act different. They were to be separate to the Lord, different from other nations. They were to be holy. That's what the word holy means. It doesn't necessarily mean we're sinless perfection or absolutely flawless. It carries more of the idea of being set aside, reserved for special use for, to the Lord. We're God's holy people. And part of that, which will be developed for the Jews in the law, is they had a very strict dietary code that set them apart from the other nations. And it was based on what was clean and what was unclean. This is clean, you can eat this. This is unclean, you can't eat that. Now, we'll talk more about that for sure as things go on. As believers, just real quick, suffice to say, we are not under any dietary laws in the New Testament. And Jesus made that clear in Mark 7 when he said it's not what comes out of your mouth that defi- or into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out. And then it, there's a little parenthesis that says, thus making clean all foods. And then in Mark, or excuse me, Acts 10 with the sheet with uh, Peter, if you're tracking, if not, don't worry about it. Point is, we're not under the dietary laws and, and, and you might even ask, well, why does he say this here? Like, what, what is the deal? Why does he say, be holy to me? So I don't want you eating animals that got killed by another, a sheep that got killed by a wolf. I want you to just throw that to the dogs. Well, you could make the case that technically they would be unclean by eating that animal. As he develops this law later, why? They're not supposed to touch dead animals. They're also, listen, supposed to drain the blood in a certain way. Life is in the blood, so they would be eating it without properly draining the blood. You could even maybe, if you're really legalistic, go the next step further and say it was an unclean animal that killed the clean animal, so you're indirectly coming in contact with the unclean animal. His blood is in, mixed in there with it, and so now you're defiled. But I think there's a bigger reason behind it. There's the legal reasons, okay? But what is eating a sheep mauled by a wolf have anything to do with being holy? I think that the issue here really is what God is saying, and and I'm not trying to stretch this, but I think what God is communicating is that, you know, just because other people say that it's okay to eat that, it's not okay for my people. See, all the other cultures might say, that's a perfectly good piece of meat, let's eat that. There's nothing wrong with that. But God says, my kids aren't going to eat that. I want you to throw it to the dogs. We're not animals. We're not going to act like animals. That might be fine for them. (laughs) Parents, you ever raise your kids up and they're they're like, well, Jimmy's parents let him watch. What's your response? Well, guess what? You don't have Jimmy's parents. 
Guess what? When you're 18, you can watch whatever you want when you're paying the rent and the electric bill for your own TV. But when you're in my house, you'll follow my rule. You know, we get all amped up, right? There's a, there's a because I said so factor. We don't like that excuse. But can I just remind us of something? If God says don't need it, honestly, he's God. and He doesn't even need to give us any reasons. He really can pull the because I said so card. Because I'm God and I said don't eat that. But I, I, I love how God is gracious and he gives, you know, there's times when he explains himself. But, but here's the thing. And again, I don't mean to stretch this too far. God's people were to have a different diet than the rest of the world. And in the New Testament and for us, not talking about physical food, I believe we are to have a different diet than the rest of the world. That we are to digest things, that we are to eat things, so to speak, that the rest of the world may say this fine, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not okay for God's kids to digest that through your eyes or to digest that through your ears. And this is something the Holy Spirit's really been revisiting me on. There's such a lack of holiness in the church. And I don't, that, it sounds so like weird to say that. It sounds like some weird preachy guy, like we need to be holy. Like, okay, what does that mean? It means to be set apart from God. But when I compromise and I allow things into my eyes that I know, I'm not doing the act, but I'm just watching somebody else do it. Or I'm just scrolling and those pictures are there. Or I'm just listening to that music that's object, you know, objectifying women or doing this or whatever. When I listen to those things, when I look at those things, when I take them into my eye gate and my ear gate, it absolutely affects my soul and it defiles me. It defiles the way I think. It messes with me. And we fight so many unnecessary battles because we have, are so compromised on what we're taking in. The movies we're watching, the shows we're binging on in Netflix, the apps that we're scrolling through, and I'm not, I'm going to show you a list now of all the things you're allowed to watch and not watch. No, I'm not going to do that. We don't do that. In the, we, we have the Holy Spirit, and he's very good at teaching his kids what's right for them and what's wrong for them. But guys, be careful not to just justify stuff because other Christians are watching it or other Christians are doing it. I think there's a powerlessness in the church because there's a lack of holiness. I think there's a joylessness in the church because there's a lack of holiness. Do you know what it says about Jesus? He was anointed with the oil of gladness above everybody else on earth. Why? Because he loved righteousness and he hated what was evil. He loved what was right and he hated evil. That's another way of saying he was holy and he didn't allow the evil stuff in. And what did it do? It created joy. Again, the lie is that that God's holding back on you. You should be able to watch, do, eat, drink, blah, 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 whatever you want. But there's times where God says, my kids shouldn't be taking that in. I'm really convicted on this, and I'm not only convicted on it, I'm concerned about it in the church. We've lowered the standard. I remember there was a, you can mock me all you want, but there was a time in my life where I was like, PG-13 movies are off for me, I cannot do PG-13, why? Because they got the rating for a reason. They're flashing some flesh or they're dropping a bomb, and I, personally, I just don't need that. And there was a time in my life where the Holy Spirit was very clear to me saying, you're just not going to watch this stuff. No, I, I'm not saying I don't ever watch a PG-13 movie now. 
But then there was like this time where I just kind of let loose a little bit, and I was watching other stuff. And I, I remember clear as day, my wife just kind of looked at me with disgust one time and said, you know, there was a time you would never have watched that. This is years and years and years ago. It wasn't like yesterday. But the Holy Spirit, I mean, my wife said, there's a time you never would have watched that. I was embarrassed. And I was humbled. And I was like, you're right. You're right. And I, I'm sorry. I tell you, there is such a, a freedom and there is such a joy and there is such a wonderful lightness when we're not polluting our souls. There's such an effectiveness. There's it's just something other than to us, to the world, where it's like, what? Like, you don't get drunk? What? You don't watch that stuff? What? Why? I don't need that stuff, dude. I don't need to. David said, I will not put anything worthless before my eyes. Oh, that's so challenging. But may God give us wisdom on this. Amen? Because can I just end what we started with? God's desire in these laws is not to jack us up or limit us or put boundaries on us because he just doesn't want us to excel or have fun. It's completely the opposite. He wants us to have so much joy and freedom and lightness and effectiveness and, and just free from anxiety and worries about stuff and, and just um, a, a powerful witness and all of those things. And that comes from obeying him. It comes from walking in his ways. It's when I violate those things that I lose my joy and I lose my effectiveness and I lose my, my, my witness in this world. May the Holy Spirit convict us in areas where we need convicted. And if he's not convicting you, like, you don't got to work it up. Trust me, just, you know what I mean? Just let him do his work. Can I triple dog Darius to be sensitive to this? I, I, I want to dare us to say, Lord, is there anything in my life right now that you're just not down with? Well, it's not necessarily a sin, but maybe it's just something that grieves you. Is there anything you'd have me to cut out tonight? Hmm. But it's so hard to rip. Oh, it feels like, ah. Then you let go of it and you're like, well, oh, that was actually pretty not, pretty not that bad. I guess I didn't need that. I got some like time on my hands to like read my Bible and hang out with my wife or whatever now. I'm going to stop talking now because I feel myself beginning to ramble. You get the point. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we're so grateful. Oh, my goodness, I just saw my watch. Sorry, Lord. Um, so grateful for your word. So grateful for your word. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your law. Lord, it's, it's not only beautiful, it's also exposing because it, we just see in this, oh, your heart, and then we realize, you know, we're not even under all these rules, but we've broken um, your heart. We've violated your thoughts, your glory, your, your stuff, and we're so grateful that we are covered by the blood of Jesus and that we are free and that, Lord, you perfectly fulfilled the law we never could have. But, Lord, in the same breath we say, but give us wisdom. Help us to walk in a way that pleases you. Help us to live lives that exude Jesus. Lord, thanks that you care about the things that we watch and listen to, the way we treat each other, the way we interact. Lord, we just want our lives to really stand out for Jesus in this culture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.